Strong Tower, I have a word for you this morning that I have never preached. It's a word that's hot off the presses. It's a word that I've never seen in the scriptures until recently. So pray with me and pray for me as I do my best to share and to speak on something that we may talk about in our homes, but we don't always hear talked about in the church house. But y'all know me. I'm going to talk about the things that we need to hear, but always based on the word of God. You see, this past week on Wednesday night, history was made in America. California Senator Kamala Harris accepted the Democratic Party's nomination to serve as its vice presidential nominee. She becomes the first black woman and first woman of Indian descent to serve on a major political party's presidential ticket. However, 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 ever since Joe Biden made it known that Kamala Harris would be his running mate, she has been attacked. Kamala has been attacked not just by the media, because they're supposed to do their job as long as they remain humane and all of that, but she has been legitimately attacked by her own people, African-American people, people of color who have said that Kamala is not quote unquote black enough. Uh, church, uh, are you ready to go there with me this morning? Um, because if she's been accused of that, I'm sure some of us have been accused of that. I'm sure some of us have been mistreated by our own people, just like Kamala is experiencing. So to my white brothers and sisters, I pray that you would lean in and listen in to this sermon today, because I got a feeling I'm going to be answering some of the questions that you have had arise in your hearts and in your minds. And you know, as your pastor, I'm going to speak the truth and I'm going to speak it in love. <laughs> so here we go. Here we go. And by the way, by the way, although I'm talking about political people and a political moment that was historical, this is not an endorsement for a political candidate. I'll be speaking on politics in the month of October leading up to the vote in November. So, so just recognize this is not an endorsement. This is an appropriate sermon illustration because I do need to know myself. What does it mean to be black enough? I mean, who determines blackness within the black community? Is there a committee somewhere? Is there a group of people who judge based on some book that they look out of to determine who's black enough and who's not black enough? Is there some grand poobah of blackness that's floating around out here? Or is it just the typical crabs in a barrel that don't like to see people within our community prosper? Uh, I think it's a lot of that. And there's a mentality that I want to uncover in the sermon this week and maybe even next week because this has got to be a part two. You see, Kamala's father is Jamaican. 
Her mother is from India. She went to a historically black college, that being Howard University in Washington, D.C., a historically black city, chocolate city. Uh, she pledged with Alpha Kappa Alpha. <laughs> and so I just wondered, those things don't qualify as blackness? And if those things don't qualify as blackness, that your daddy is Jamaican <laughs> and that you went to an HBCU and you pledged, I don't know what defines blackness. But I think the people within the black community who are questioning her blackness are people who probably have a problem with the fact that she's married to a white man. Oh yeah, I bet you there's somebody that's got a problem that she's not married to a brother, but to a white man. Or there may be people who have a problem with the fact that her hair is of a straight texture, that it's not kinky, uh, that it's straight, that it resembles white hair or Indian hair more than it does African hair that's of a different course and texture. So there may be people hating on her because of how her hair looks, or let me go ahead and say it, how her skin looks, that she is light skin, that she is what we would call growing up, she is a red bone. Uh, she would be considered back in the day a house slave because it would be obvious that she was mixed because of her lighter complexion, as opposed to the field slaves who were dark because they were out in the fields and they no doubt had not had an interaction with the slave master to develop this kind of lightness in their melanin. Oh man, so I know there are people uh, uh, who, who are committing the sin of colorism because it happens all the time within the black community. And again, I'm going to talk about the mentality that causes that, why we uh, uh, frown upon people who are on the spectrums, the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their color of skin within the black community. Those who are very dark and then those who are very light and how those on both ends have caught shade from people within the black community based on how they look. Oh boy, oh boy. Or, or maybe is it because she worked as a prosecutor in Los Angeles, a, a community that is known for locking up black men, and so there are people who have a problem with her based on the fact that she did her job because the assumption is that all black men are innocent. Uh, no, no, that's not true. Not all black men are innocent, uh, but many of them are. And we have to believe that she did her job with integrity, uh, uh, with character. But just because she has a particular job that leads to the prosecution of black people, that doesn't mean that she has something against black men or black people. Again, we, we got to be careful with these assumptions that we make. Uh, or is it that she has a working knowledge and command of the English language? <laughs> that she doesn't talk street, that she doesn't talk hood, but I bet you she can because as black people many times we are bilingual. You know, we, we can talk Ebonics and we can talk the King's English. And so, so a lot of people, again, they, they try to find things to put people down when many times, hear me when I say this, the problem is not in the other person, the problem is in you as you make a judgment on the other person. There may be something that you're envious about, jealous about. 
I know what I'm talking about because that happened to my mother growing up in Baltimore, Maryland. My mother, um, her father is a white man, so therefore my mother is biracial and she's very light-skinned and her hair is very straight. And so when she was in school, middle school in particular, she was harassed by her fellow students. She was put down with how she looked and how her hair was straight. And, and, and she was hurt emotionally so much that she thought about cutting all of her hair off in order to get them to stop harassing her. And so we don't need black people, we don't need the white man to tear us down because we do a good enough job of tearing ourselves down. D did you hear what I said? We don't need to worry about the white man tearing people down in the black community because we do a good enough job of doing that ourselves. For just as there are many shades of blackness, there are also many shades of the black experience. There are many shades of black opinion. There are many shades of the black perspective. There is no one definition or representation of blackness. We are not a monolithic people. We are a gloriously diverse people. Yes, we are a tribal people and a communal people, but we are also individuals as well. And we need to remember that, especially for those of us who live here in America. You see, at one time, the poster child of pro-blackness and Afrocentrism was Malcolm X. And even Malcolm X was called a Benedict Arnold by black people. And even Malcolm X was put to death, killed and silenced by his own people that he tried to build up black people. So if Malcolm X could be killed by his own people, my goodness, is there a definition for who's black enough? My, my, my. You see, we say that black lives matter. But do black lives matter to black people? I'm going to say amen for my white folks because I know you thought that before. We go around trumpeting black lives matter and we should. We're not talking about as far as myself and other believers in the Lord. We're not talking about black lives matter, the organization. No, we're talking about black lives matter, the plea. The, the call, the cry, the moment, the movement, not the organization because there are things problematic with its structure and its belief system. But in terms of Black Lives Matter, it needs to be said by everyone. But when other people outside of our community look at those of us within the black community with how we treat one another, and even how we take the lives of one another, it would cause them to think and to ask, do black lives matter to black people? Yeah, I said it. Yeah, that's right, I said it. Tell your friends that I said it. <laughs> you see, back in the day, um, there was a group of rappers who got together and created a rap song called Self-Destruction. Because at that time, um, there was a rise in handgun violence perpetrated within the black community against one another. And so therefore, uh, the chances of you dying at the hands of another black man back in the 80s uh, was, was, was high. And so that being problematic, 
The rapper said, let's make a song talking about how we're destroying one another as a people and we need to stop it. And one of the rappers in that song, his name was Cool Mo D. And Cool Mo D's verse went a little something like this. Took a brother's life with a knife as his wife. Cried cause he died a trifling death when he left his very last breath. I slept, so watch your step. Back in the 60s, our brothers and sisters were hanged. How can you gangbang? I never ever ran from the Ku Klux Klan, and I shouldn't have to run from a black man because that's self-destruction. So as black men are trying to have pride to stand up to the Klan and not run from the Klan or from white supremacists, we have to watch our back and keep our head on the swivel because if the white man doesn't do us in, then the black man will. The black man. I've been called the N-word more by black people ever than I was by white people. So we, we, we inflict harm on one another. Now, we have to ask, why do we have this mentality, this self-destructive mentality? And where does it come from? Well, the theologian in me knows that it comes from sin, inherent indwelling sin, total depravity. When Adam sinned, sin and death passed upon all of us, we are born sinners. We are born in opposition to God and in opposition to one another. So theologically, I know that part of the problem is indwelling sin, but sociologically, I know that part of the problem to this kind of mentality is dwelling in sinful structures. Oh, let me slow it down and bring it in reverse. Uh, I know part of the problem that we have with other people, especially people within our own people group, which by the way, just doesn't happen to black people. It happens to every ethnic group, which is why I don't believe in the term black on black crime because I've never heard it alluded to white on white crime or Latino on Latino crime and Asian on Asian crime. And until I hear it declared that way, I do not use the term black on black crime because that is used to, to make us look like we are heinous people, that we are cannibalistic, that we are murderous people, as if other people groups don't have those kind of problems within, okay? So, so, so part of the problem is theological, but also part of the problem is sociological, where we've got to look at not only sin that dwells within us, but when sinners dwell within sinful systems, because environment has a lot to do with who we are and what we do or do not do. So we have to not only look at indwelling sin, but where people dwell in sinful circumstances and situations. And so therefore, I have a passage of scripture uh, that I want you to look at with me. Go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. It is the sermon that Stephen preaches to his own people. And his own people end up killing him after he preaches. And in the sermon, he gives a history lesson of the Hebrew people. And the Hebrew people have many similarities with African or African-American people. Namely, that both people groups experienced slavery for approximately 400 years. Mm -hmm. So when you read Acts 7, this sermon that he preaches off of the cuff with the aid of the Holy Spirit, 
Look for all of the times he talks about bondage. Look for all of the times he talks about oppression. Now he's going to talk about Jesus being the solution, but he's not so spiritual that he doesn't recognize the, the history of his people in terms of racism and structural oppression. And so Acts chapter seven, I wanna preach a message today entitled, Recognizing the Slave Mentality. Oh yeah, the slave mentality. Why do we do the things that we do to one another? I'm here to suggest to you based on scripture that there's a slave mentality within our people, a slave mentality that needs to be broken. So this week, we're gonna look at how we can recognize that mentality. Next week, we're gonna talk about how we can uh, have victory over that mentality. But first today, let's look at recognizing the slave mentality. Look at verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you do wrong or why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Do you see what I just saw? Do you hear what I just read? The Hebrew people who have been in bondage probably about 390 years at this time, generation after generation after generation being born into Egyptian bondage. That Moses goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so, uh, the book of Genesis, uh, Exodus, rather, where this story is told originally, Moses looks this way and he looks that way and he lays hands on the Egyptian and kills him with his bare hands. So Moses is a strong man. He also, we know, has an anger problem that manifests every now and then in scripture. But he kills an Egyptian with his bare hands, hides him in the sand because he thinks he's doing God's work. And he's hoping that the people who've been oppressed will recognize that he is their deliverer. Mm -mm. No, no, no. God doesn't want to deliver his people through violence. Uh, uh. No, 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 no. 
Moses wasn't ready yet. Even though he had his education, he wasn't ready yet because God had to give him another education out on the backside of a mountain in the desert for 40 years. So I know what you got from the Egyptian school system. Now nah, you, you're not ready yet. I got to take you out to the burning bush. You got to meet me. And you got to combine what you're learning in the classroom with what you're learning on holy ground from me. And then you'll be ready after 40 years and they will be ready to want to have you as their leader. But right now they don't want you and you're not ready to lead. And so the next day after killing the Egyptian, he comes up to two of his brothers who are fighting with each other. And he tries to break them up and reconcile them. But one of the brothers pushed Moses away and said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? But you've got to see the question that Moses asked at the tail end of verse 26, when Moses says, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong one another? Why do you hurt one another? Why are you possibly on the verge of killing one another? Why? And if we're honest, we have asked that question about people within our own community. I know I've done that as a black man. Why do we say the things that we say to one another? Why do we do the things against one another? As black people, as uh, descendants of Africans. Uh, we're here on the diaspora in America. Why do we do this to one another? Why do we talk about one another? Why do we put one another down? Well, here's the deal. If we try to interpret this one slave who seems to have an attitude, right? Because he's pushing Moses away. He's already in a fight. And then he asked Moses that crazy question that I know causes his jaw to drop. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian? So, so I'm going to talk about that Hebrew slave. I'm going to talk about that brother because that brother was key in Moses's conversion and turnaround. It was his eye opening experience. This slave, this slave. But if we try to interpret this slave as an individual, in terms of why is he fighting? Why is he hostile? Why is he angry? Why is he dismissive and even suspicious of Moses? If we just look at him as an individual, but we don't interpret the context that this individual is in. In other words, if we only look at him and not at the institution of slavery that has existed for hundreds of years, we will misinterpret who this man is. You see, the evangelical church, we are known for our biblical exegesis, but we are not known for our social exegesis. But here's the thing. A proper biblical exegesis ought to lead to social action. But in order to understand biblical exegesis and social exegesis or looking at the context of what's going on in history and in our community, context is important in both biblical exegesis and social exegesis. And as a church, we need to understand both. But biblical exegesis is the priority and the motivation to do social work and social ministry. Oh, I said something. I hope you heard that. So we just can't be a people who look at scripture and parse it and break it down. But we don't look at communities and parse them and break them down and understand why people do what they do and think how they think. 
Now, when we go overseas to do missions work, we do study the people before we go and minister to them. We want to know their language. We want to know their history. But when it comes to ministering in urban contexts in America, the church, the white church in particular, they do a poor job of understanding the context that black folks are in. We cannot just interpret the individual and his actions without interpreting the environment and the institutions that help foster the actions because they deal with the mind. So if we don't deal with the mind, we'll never be able to minister to the man because the Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So here is a Hebrew slave who probably, you know, let's just jump into it. I'm going to give you three points and I'm going to move through them real quick. The one thing, first thing I want you to see is that this man is hopeless. Secondly, I want you to see that he's powerless. Then thirdly, I want you to see that he's loveless. I want us to try to understand his mind so that we can understand better how to minister to him. So the first thing I want you to see is that he is hopeless. Why do I say he was hopeless? Why does being hopeless affect his mentality? Well, listen, he was born a slave. He was born into slavery. So therefore, 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 if we've never experienced slavery, if we've never experienced segregation or the uh, residual effects of those things, we need to be very humble, compassionate, merciful, and sympathetic because although it may not be my experience, it is this man's experience and I need to respect that. Because just because it's not my experience, that doesn't mean that it's not true, that it's not real, and that it has not affected him, especially his mind. So as Christians, if anybody ought to be compassionate, understanding, and merciful, that is the ability to walk in other people's shoes, to incarnate into their world. It ought to be us. It ought to be us who we, we are patient people because God is patient with us. And so this man was born a slave. He was born into slavery and slavery messes with your mind. He was born into poverty. He's going to die in poverty. He's going to die a slave. So therefore he doesn't have hope. So what is hope? Hope is a positive expectation of the future. So if you don't have a positive expectation of the future, you don't have hope. So you're not planning for tomorrow. You're just trying to make it today. And you don't even know if you can make it today. And some days you don't even care if you make it on that day because your world is a world of hopelessness. He resents people who have freedom. He has to as he sees Egyptians walking around being free and he can't go where he wants to go and do what he wants to do. I'm sure he resents those who have freedom. He is not content being a slave. Who wants to be a slave? Who wants to be owned by someone else? And here in America, when the North won the war, the Civil War, they allowed the South, the losing team, 
to write the historical record. That, that's not how it's supposed to go. And as the losing side wrote the historical record, they lessened the evil of slavery, calling it a peculiar institution. This is that lost cause doctrine. And they made it seem like the slaves were happy and content being on the plantation that their slaves loved being enslaved to these good white people. But again, they're assuming things on the slave. The slave did not appreciate being enslaved. The slave was not content with being a slave or being another person's property. And without hope and a future, the slave doesn't care if he lives or dies because he knows that any day he can die unjustly. Can I say it again? He doesn't care about the day because he knows that any day he can die an unjust death and the person who killed him, i.e. Egyptian, will not suffer retribution for it. So his life doesn't mean anything. And again, he can be killed at any time and the perpetrator who kills him will not suffer any kind of retribution. Does that sound similar to the American context and what we're dealing with today? So for the people who attempted to say slavery was that much long ago and segregation was that long ago and we've had a black president, now you got a black vice presidential nominee, what are y'all complaining for? Well, until things change, when I walk into a bank and I've got to give them 500 pieces of identification in order for them to trust me to cash a check in my own bank, then we got to keep talking uh, until black people are not afraid when police tr uh, follow them or pull them over. And we don't have to give our kids the talk anymore about how to comply uh, until those that man. And there are so many things because we're still dealing with now. now I may have never been a slave. I may have never experienced segregation, but I'm dealing with the repercussions of those things that lasted for hundreds of years in the context of America. And you may have never owned slaves or mistreated people during segregation if you're non-black, but chances are you're experiencing the benefits of a system that was built by white people, for white people, and to white people. You benefit. But as Christians, what should our place be? We, we, we should identify more with the fact that we're citizens of heaven than the fact that we're citizens of the United States of America. Uh, we should be more concerned with what is biblical as, a term, as opposed to what is black. Now black has its place, but the Bible is first. And we should not allow as white people our whiteness to ruin our witness. <laughs> you know I'm going to give it both ways a strong tower. You know I'm an equal opportunity dispenser of truth. You know this word is a two-edged sword. It cuts black people and white people. It cuts rich people and poor people. It cuts men and women. It cuts adults and children. It cuts everybody because it's the truth. And the question is how are we going to respond to truth? Are we going to harden our heart or open our heart? Are we going to repent or are we going to rebel? This man was hopeless. Now here it is, I gotta hit you with this. If he was married, his wife can be taken from him at any time and given to someone else. So because he, he does, and I'm gonna talk about that in a minute with power. He's hopeless because what little bit he does have can be taken away. 
The Egyptians could take his wife and give her to an Egyptian or give her to another Hebrew. Or they could just take his wife and rape his wife and send his wife back to him. So this man is hopeless. And if he has a sister, same thing can happen to a sister. If he has daughters, the same thing can happen to his daughters. And there was no justice for him. What court could he go to? What police officer could he call? He was hopeless. And this messes with a man's state of mind when he's hopeless. But not only the men, but also the sisters. And in this book entitled Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing, there's a passage here that speaks about what mothers go through with their daughters. Let me read a portion of it to you. What must it have been like? Imagine that there is a mother with young children, among them a daughter about 10 or 12 years old. Like any good mother, she would want to protect her children from harm. Because she is enslaved, her children are also slaves, and she must come to grips with the fact that she is incapable of defending them against assaults from masters and overseers. This mother knows there will be a day when white men will demand to have access to her daughter and that these men or boys will use her fragile young body to satisfy their sexual cravings. That day may mark the initiation into manhood for the slave master's son, or perhaps that day she will be offered as an evening gift for white male visitors. There's more here. I, I can't even read the rest. But it talks about how she has to prepare her daughter in terms of how to stiffen her body while being raped. And this is what women in, who were enslaved had to teach their children. That messes with your mind. Ah, wow. Not only was he hopeless, this man was powerless. Think about it. What does he actually own? He doesn't own his house. He doesn't own his clothes. He doesn't own his family. He doesn't own his food. He doesn't own his schedule. He doesn't own his life. What little dignity he has can be stripped away at any moment. He's powerless. He doesn't have riches or wealth. He's building buildings and wealth for other people. He may not even have his own name. He may have been given another name, a slave name. Therefore, he probably can't read and he probably can't write. He's powerless. What he knows about his people and what he knows about his religion is not something he read in a book, but something that has been passed down for generations by way of oral tradition. And so how does this not mess up a man's mind that he has no real, true, authentic power? So he's hopeless and he's powerless. But finally, He's loveless. This man here that, that I'm trying to exegete and interpret, this man that's in Acts chapter 7, verse 26 and 27, who's fighting with his brother, who pushes Moses away, and who asks him, who made you a prince and a ruler over us? This man I'm trying to understand. 
I don't want to interpret him without proper context. So he is hopeless, he is powerless, and he's loveless. He probably doesn't know God. Because at this time, they don't have the word of God. They don't have the Ten Commandments. They don't have scripture. So when Moses comes on the scene later and tells them that he met with God, he had to tell them the name of God. Yahweh, I am that I am. So they didn't know the name of God. They couldn't read about the exploits of God. So if they didn't know God, that means they don't know the love of God. And if somebody tried to come and talk to them about God and about the love of God, would not the mentality of someone who has been in bondage for generations say, God, who is God? And if God is God, and if we are his people, why are we enslaved and punished like this? Why has he put us in this predicament? So therefore, he probably is angry towards God and is blaming God for his situation. So therefore, get his mentality. So if he doesn't know God, he doesn't know the love of God. And if he doesn't know the love of God, that means he doesn't love himself. And that means he can't love other people because God is love. But if you don't know God and God's love, how can you love yourself and love other people? And by the way, isn't that what Jesus said is the greatest commandment? You shall love God with everything that you have. And you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you don't know God, you don't love God, you don't love yourself, and you don't love your neighbor, which is why you will fight your neighbor. Because you don't care. You have been mentally abused so long that you don't love yourself and you probably even hate yourself. You don't value your life, so you don't value other people's lives. You're not afraid to die because there's nothing worth living for. So when we try to translate that over into the mentality of African Americans who many times feel hopeless, powerless and loveless, it may help us better understand the mentality that they have. Because we can't minister to them with the gospel. They didn't heard about Jesus. They need to see Jesus. So we have our work ahead of us as the church and as far as black people within the church. This man's mental state, he is struggling. And if he's fighting his own people, this probably means he doesn't value them. And we can see that he learned this from the Egyptians. Because the Egyptians didn't value the Hebrews. So why should Hebrews value Hebrews? Quickly, the Bible says in Exodus 1.10 that Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with the Hebrews. Exodus 1, 11 and 12, the taskmasters afflicted the Hebrews. Exodus 1, verse 3, the Egyptians made the Hebrews serve with rigor. Exodus 1, 14, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Exodus 1, the Egyptians killed Hebrew baby boys by drowning them in the Nile River. Mm, mm, mm. 
Acts 7.19 says that the Egyptians exposed Hebrew babies. In other words, let them die from being exposed to the elements. So they are killing Hebrew children. And the Egyptians beat the Hebrews. Exodus 2 verse 11 and Exodus 2.23, the Jews groaned because of their bondage and they cried out. So again, this man in Acts 7, who's fighting with his brother, who's not recognizing Moses, who pushes Moses away. This man probably says, I learned how to mistreat my people from how you mistreat my people. So don't you dare come lecture me about the need to stop mistreating my people when you have yet to learn how to treat my people. So don't tell me to go and be concerned about what's happening in Chicago and in Baltimore where I'm from in terms of things that are happening, happening in underserved, underprivileged communities, in terms of uh, uh, crimes that are committed between black people. Don't tell me to go there because I know you don't care about us. And you're just trying to deflect and get off of the subject at hand by talking about what we're doing to one another. And I know you don't care, but watch this. Slavery, American slavery, the way black people were treated, black people did not develop a, 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 a much self-worth to want to care for themselves. And we were pitted against one another, the house, the field, dark skin, light skin. The ones who had access to master, the ones who didn't. We were put together to fight against one another for sport. Our families were ripped apart. Men were treated as studs and would uh, have relations with women in order to produce children. They were bucks. And so they, they, they were taught immorality, encouraged in immorality. The, the African slave home was broken. Children could be taken away at any time. You could be whipped, beaten, and killed on the plantation for no fault, no reason. And every day you live with this. And so a lot of times black people learn how to mistreat black people because we learned it from white people. Now, now again, I, I'm not just pointing with a finger, I'm also pointing with a thumb, but I'm not just going to point with a thumb and I don't point with a finger. We learned how to hurt one another from how you hurt us. We learned how to ridicule one another and call one another names by how you called us names and ridiculed us. And we're not going to allow you in this day and hour to try to interpret us as individuals in this meritocracy system in America and say, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Why can't you do right? Uh, if you do the law uh, properly and don't break the law, you don't have to worry about police. We're not going to let you try to put us in this box to say perform right, fix your behavior without dealing with the systems and the structures that contribute to our behavior and which keep us bound. Because the solution is not either or, is both and to deal with the individuals and the institution. So when we come talking Jesus, we need to talk to people not only about getting their soul right, but how do we get the conditions right? Any gospel that doesn't deal with sociology, if it only deals with spirituality, it's not the true whole gospel. 
I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. That's next week. Let me bring it in reverse. I got to close by telling you when Moses showed up. All right. Moses shows up. When Moses shows up, <laughs> these brothers don't recognize him. Moses shows up because God finally talks to his heart and says, I want you to deliver the people. But Moses thought he was going to do it by his hand and not by the hand of God. Moses thought he was going to do it by violence. I mean, you're going to kill one Egyptian at a time, brother. That, come on now. He needed to grow and wait on God. So he goes out to, to be with his people after 40 years. And when he comes, they had never seen Moses or a person like Moses in all their lives. Moses dressed like an Egyptian, Exodus chapter 2, verse 19. But he looked like a Hebrew. He looked like them, but he didn't live like them. He looked like them, but he didn't sound like them because he probably had an Egyptian accent. They lived in Goshen. Moses lived in a palace. They didn't go to school. And if they did, it was inferior. But Moses went to a good school. They lived in the ghettos of Goshen, but Moses lived in the suburbs of Egypt. They were field Hebrews. Moses was a house Hebrew. So in this slave's mind, Moses worked for the man. Moses identified more with the oppressor than with his people. Because when Moses did come out, the Bible says in Exodus 2.11, he watched them with their burdens. He didn't help them with their burdens. So he may have this elitist attitude as he's looking at his people, not helping, but just watching. So therefore, they're suspicious of this dude. Why is he coming around? Who is he? He walked around free while they were in bondage. And so Moses asked the question, brothers, why are you fighting? The one slave pushes him away. The one slave questions Moses. And that is the mentality of many African Americans who push away people who look just like me. People who question people who look just like me. Oh, y'all. When I first moved to Franklin, in 1993, and I began working in the black community. They shaded your pastor. The black pastors shaded your pastor. They, they had no love for your pastor. And, um, and some of it had to do with the fact that I was associated with white people because I was working at an all-white church. So they made an assumption about me that I must not be, again, black enough or a real brother since I'm kicking it with white folk. So, so, so let me tell you something, man. It's crazy when as a black leader like myself or a black believer in Christ, you experience racism and prejudice from your own people as well as from black people. This is why you better hold on to God at the beginning of the day and, and at the end of the day because he won't treat you like uh, uh, your own folk treat you or other folk treat you. But, but, but these black folks, they called me a carpetbagger and all kind of stuff like that. And um, it didn't hurt me. I, I was sad that I wasn't accepted by them, but I knew who I was in Jesus. 
and I knew about the love that these white folks had. I, I saw love from them. I experienced love from them. And many of the students and children in the community felt the same way. Uh, but I still had to try to understand the mentality of these pastors because they've seen white people come and go. They've seen white people want to minister to children but not want to minister to the adults. So they're suspicious and understandably so. And over time, I got to know them and put their fears to rest, but there were still some of them who were at a distance with me. So that's just the way that it is. I'm going to run with people who are running with Jesus and running for Jesus. I don't care what color you are, but I need to understand why my people think the way that they think. And I hope those of you outside of our community got a little glimpse as well in terms of how people think, their mentality. That people are hopeless and people are powerless and people are loveless. And this is the mentality of a slave. And they will hurt one another because of this mentality. But next week, if you'll join me, I'm going to talk about replacing the slave mentality. And how we as a people can build one another up instead of tearing one another down. But as I pray, I want to pray in particular this morning for black people in our church and who are watching and listening. I want to pray for you because you've suffered emotional trauma and mental anguish at the hands of your own people. They mistreated you because of the texture of your hair. They mistreated you because of the color of your skin. They talked about you because of how you talk and how you speak and where you come from. You've been put down by your own people and it's hurt you. And I want to acknowledge that pain today. And even though I did not do it, I want to say that I'm sorry. I pray that God will wash you and encourage you and remind you who you are and whose you are. And you will not let anyone's words or actions against you override God's words and his actions toward you through his son to die on that cross because he loves you to set you free. So you are not what they said. Um, you're here, you're alive, you're a survivor, you're made in the image of God, and he loves you, he's using you. Whether they understand or not, <laughs> let me pray. Father, we're trying to learn about this slave mentality that is within every people group. I just happen to know about how it works in my people group. It doesn't feel good when we get vilified. It doesn't feel good when we get ridiculed and talked about, even left out, called names, talked about because of the color of our skin, how light it is, how dark it is, about our hair, our nose, our lips, from our own people. Lord, I pray that you would remind each and every person under the sound of my voice that they are uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made by you. You made no mistakes when you made each and every one of us. We have value and dignity because we're made in your image. And we thank you for Jesus that we're being made after the image of the Son of God 
who was also called names, who was also mistreated and lied upon. Lord, your word says that Jesus came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. But John 1.12 says, but to as many as received him, Jew and Gentile, to those who believed in his name, they received the right to become children of God. So I thank you, Lord, that when our own people re reject us, you are here to receive us. Lord, I pray for those who may need to get counsel, um, to go see someone, to deal with the things that were told to them, that, Lord, they'll have the courage to get help. Today, Lord, as their pastor, I just want to pray, Lord, that you bless them and encourage them. And I thank you again that they're still alive, they're still here, they're still prospering. And I thank you, Lord, that their latter days are going to be better than their former days. And I pray, Lord, that you help our community, especially now, to capitalize on this moment and stop making excuses, to stop blaming the white man to stop blaming this and blaming that. Yes, Lord, we acknowledge that there are systems in place, but Lord, there's a power that is at our disposal that if we can learn to tap into you, we can overcome the world. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Strong Tower Bible Church family. I just wanted to come before you on this morning. First of all, to say I am excited about the opportunity to share with you all in the God is my strong tower video. I want to give a shout out to all of the people who have participated in giving your testimonies. They have been like air to me. They have blessed me tremendously. I now know how the power of our testimonies can just infuse the saints with life. So I am grateful for you sharing your testimonies with me, but now I get a chance to share mine. I don't know if you all remember, but last year, last August, I stood before the church and asked you all to support and just pray with me about entry into a postgraduate program for mental health. Um, for you that don't know, I um, have a passion, I've always had a passion for mental health. I've been a primary care provider for over 17 years. And every time I would go into the clinic and see my patients, I would just mourn in my heart because so many of our physical diseases are a direct result of our lack of mental health and wellness. So, I decided I wanted to go back. So, I stood before you because God opened a unique opportunity. It's hard to get into programs, um, and God opened up a unique opportunity for me to attend the University of Tennessee um, to go into a psychiatric mental health practitioner program. And so, I went in, got all my paperwork in, asked you all to pray, and I want you to know that I finished the program. I'm about to burst. I actually, I 
finished the program. Not only did I finish the program, I finished it in a excellent way. So thank you so much, Saints, for your prayers. I want to share just a few things with you about this testimony that have really blessed me, and I hope that it will bless you as well. Number one, when I went into mental health, when God cleared out my schedule and everything, jobs, everything to be able to focus on this, little did I know that our world as we knew it would change. I did not know that we would be doing virtual church. I did not know that COVID would be here. I did not know of the social unrest in our country. Who knew? But I want you to know that God knew. And so he got me in this program for such a time as this. God is strategic saints. And so all you have to do is say yes and watch him do it. I also want to let you know, number two, that God will make sense out of chaos. You all, when COVID hit, many of us who were in programs, whether you were in a program, you were in medical school, whether you were in physical therapy school, whatever school where you needed to see patients, hospitals would not let us go into uh, their facilities to complete our clinicals. So we were almost at a standstill. I still have colleagues that did not finish the program because they couldn't get the clinical hours. I want you to know that God strategically placed me in areas and in facilities that were not affected by COVID. Only God could do that. Then I was strapped. I didn't know where I was going to get my child psychiatry uh, hours. So God made a opportunity for me to be able to go to Chattanooga, Tennessee for a couple of months to be able to sit one-on-one -on -one with a child psychiatrist and learn and glean in a optimal environment, just me and him to learn and to, to deal with child psychiatry to get my hours. You all, the opportunity was absolutely God ordained. And then, as far as uh, my uh, therapy hours, God allowed me the rich and unique opportunity to be able to come back to Nashville and to complete those hours without any delay and get some of the most amazing training in therapy. You all, I could not have asked for a better experience. God did it. I said yes, and God did it. So you all, I just want to say thank you again. I want to thank leadership. Thank you, Pastor Chris and Jerry for praying, the elders for praying for me, for giving me the grace and giving me the flex to be able to do whatever I needed to do to get this done. So I am here to say it is finished. I do have to sit for my board, so I need you to continue to pray, but you all now, I am equipped to serve the church in an area that is long overdue, that is so needed, and that is in the area of mental health. I long to be on the battlefield for God, helping us to be mentally strong. Thank you for everything. I love God, I love you, and that's why God is my strong tower.
Be blessed, saints. Hey church, this is Pastor Chris coming at you with a special announcement. I know that many of you are wondering what the church's position is when we consider COVID-19 and coming back together to worship as a church. We know that several churches in uh, Williamson County in particular are meeting together, they're social distancing, they're wearing masks, and I know many of you have asked what's going on with us in Davidson County are we going to come back together and practice these uh, disciplines to be healthy in terms of wearing masks, washing hands, uh, having distance in the sanctuary, and on and on? Well, the elders and I have been praying about this ever since everything started back in March. Every elders meeting, we talk about this and we begin to look at the data every month and we try to discern what would the Lord have us to do as a church. Well, when we met last week, and once again, we listened to Elder Joe, um, who is a medical physician, who told us um, his professional opinion. He gave us many of the, of the, much of the data, the research that is out there right now. Um, I also reached out to uh, Elder Tyler, who is in Cleveland, Ohio, who is also a medical professional. We've talked to Dr. Jewell on our team. And after talking to our professionals, the elders and I realized that it is not safe, nor is it right for us to come together and worship from now through the end of the year as far as a corporate worship experience. Um, we want to be good stewards of one another's health as well as our own health. And we don't want anyone uh, leaving out from Strong Tower making other people sick. We surely don't want anyone coming in who is sick. It's just too soon. It's just too early. And although it grieves our heart, it would grieve our heart even more, again, if someone got sick. And knowing that our church is such an affectionate church that we wouldn't be able to hug, that really we wouldn't even be able to worship as far as using our voices because of projectiles and all of those things. And it's just best for us to stay in this virtual season that we're in from now through the end of 2020. And I wanna let you know, especially those who are more wired to be with people, who are more outgoing um, and, and you miss physical contact with people, um, if you need to go and worship at another church in order to have community with people, by all means do so. But if you do that also, be safe when you go. Um, but let me also let you know that in September, we will begin midweek Bible study again, which is more of an interaction where you can get online and you can talk to one another and, and follow along on Wednesday nights as we've done earlier in this pandemic. But also on Sunday mornings, we're gonna have virtual Apollos Training Institute classes for our adults. There will be classes for our children, classes for our students, um, also on Wednesday nights and Thursdays, there'll be classes for uh, our children and our students. So we're trying to uh, have virtual touch as much as we possibly can. So next month, once we get through August, uh, we'll have classes in the morning 
virtually, and then we'll have our virtual worship service. Wednesday nights, we'll do Facebook Live for Bible study. So we're doing our best to try to connect even though we can't touch one another. Um, so uh, that's the word, church. Again, uh, we wish we had a different word, but we know this is the word God has for this church. We, the elders, as a matter of fact, we got together and prayed. We felt God spoke to us very clearly in our meeting, but we got together and prayed several days later as an elder team to make sure we heard from the Lord. And uh, so that's the word we speak to you. And we know that it's hard. We know that it's hard to wait on the Lord. But the only thing that's harder than waiting on the Lord is wishing you would have waited on the Lord. So no regrets with us, okay? And God's been blessing our online worship experience. Uh, people have been joining in from around the country and even around the world. Um, God has blessed us by way of the various uh, metrics that determine the, the health of a church, uh, starting with the finances and even attendance, online attendance. So Strong Tower has been healthy and also we've continued in outreach. We're still teaching and preaching the word. We just aren't in here. But let's hope that 2021, um, there'll be a breakthrough. Let's hope and pray that in 2021, things will change and we'll be able to come back into the house of God to be the church gathered and not just the church scattered. Amen. Love you guys. Have a blessed day. Hey, I'm Tom. And I'm Toma. And this is How, How to, to Make a Successful Video. We just want to offer you some tips on how to make a successful video. All right, first thing you want to do, you want to make sure you are counting in like this. Okay, I'm going to count myself in. Three, two, one. Pastor Chris. Second thing you want to do, you want to make sure you add enough pad like this. And that is what Strong Tower has mean so much to me. That is correct. You want to make sure your camera is not facing this way, but this way, so that you may have your full frontal and exposed. That is correct. At any rate, you can make a successful video anywhere by following these tips. All over the world, I need you to lift your hands up. And give him glory. <laughs> give him glory. My, 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 Strong Tower Bible Church. Another worship service God has allowed us to experience. I mean, for a church that is not meeting together corporately, I mean, there's still so much going on in this church, from this church, and through this church. Because meeting together is one thing, but being the church is something else. I tell you what. And so, man, there are ways we are being the church. Uh, I want to thank you again for helping with the food bank that is on Thursdays from 10 to 12. 
Thursdays is when we drop off and when we pick up every Thursday as we minister to the community. So thank you, Strong Tower, for giving to the Lord, not only your financial gifts, but also giving physical sustenance to us that we can bless other people in the community. So Thursdays from 10 to 12, the food bank. And then also coming up next month is anniversary month, y'all. It's the 25th year. God is good to allow us to be a church for this long. Oh boy, if I could sing, you know I'd sing right now. Uh, Cause I've had some weary days. I've had a road to climb. Uh, let me stay in my lane. And so God has been with us every step of the way. He is faithful, he is good. And that I get a little taste of heaven until I get to heaven hanging out with y'all. Praise God for this church that he birthed. So next month, we're gonna celebrate what God has done. We're gonna celebrate what God is doing. And we're gonna honor men and women who, who have been instrumental in Strong Tower Story. And that's each and every one of you because we've all been given gifts to bless this body and you have blessed this body in more ways than one. But here's a way specifically I would love for you to bless the body. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So we wanna hear you say so. We are recording testimonies to play every Sunday in the month of September because we're celebrating all month long. Uh, we want to hear testimonies from our own congregation about what the Lord has done in your life as a result of being in this church. And so there was an email that was sent out to you that has specifics in it. We'll resend the email, but this coming Tuesday is the last day that we will receive testimonies from the church. Now watch this church. I've got friends from around the country who have sent some testimonies in, some words of blessings in, but I don't want to just hear from them. I want to hear from you as well. And for every testimony we don't get to play on Sunday because we only have but so much time, um, our team is going to compile on a disc to give to me and Darina so that we can watch and enjoy and be encouraged by uh, uh, in the days to come. So we need you to go and do a testimony about Strong Tower, what this church has meant to you, how it's blessed you, maybe how you found it, uh, whatever. Maybe you got baptized here, you became born again here. Uh, just, just share testimony because it will encourage folks on what the Lord has done and is doing. All right, all right. And also next month, we will have a pre-membership class on September 26th so you can uh, uh, fill out um, some information for that class, go to info at stbch.org and we'll get you ready for the Zoom call for that class that we're going to have on September 26th, Saturday morning, starting at 10 o'clock. Shouldn't go past 12. Uh, folks can't stay, uh, pay that uh, long of attention on Zoom. So, so we're going to make it short and sweet for you, all right? So a lot going on. But above all, if you don't know Jesus, Today is the day of salvation. Uh, trust the Lord. Open up your heart and receive the Lord into your life. It'll be the best decision that you can ever make. And if you make that decision saying, Jesus be my Lord, Jesus be my Savior, please email us at info at stbch.org and let us know so that we can rejoice and we want to send a couple of resources to you as you start your new walk with Christ. 
Oh boy, again, so much stuff, y'all. I can't even get into it all. But I thank God for what our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hearts have felt today. And by the way, y'all pray for your worship team. Pray for your pastor because it's not easy uh, ministering with no one here. We know you're there, but you're not here. And trying to preach in this context is not easy. And trying to lead worship in this context is really not easy. So Lord, would you pray for us? I know the oil of the Lord is upon us and it may look easy, but it's hard. We mess up so many times. We know it's imperfect. We know what we're offering to God. We wish it were better, but man, sometimes it's jacked up. And uh, we just ask that you be patient with us and that you pray for us, all right? Until we're all able to meet together again. So let's pray, church. <laughs> Father, thank you for another Sunday, another Lord's Day, to worship you and to honor your son and to thank you for the communion of the Holy Spirit. Bless your people, Lord, this week. I pray, Lord, that you would meet needs. I pray, Lord God, that you provide as only you can provide. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us about this mentality that is uh, uh, present in every community, especially communities, Lord, that are, are, are disadvantaged and people who have a history of oppression. Help us to be patient with other people just as much as we would like people to be patient with us. Help us, Lord, to understand but not excuse these kinds of mentalities. We thank you, Lord, that the truth is what sets us free. We thank you for a savior who is the truth, who sets us free. So Lord, be with us as we dismiss from this worship service. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Amen, church. God bless you.